Well, growing up, I have this distinct memory of a TV show my mom would often watch. It was called Touched by an Angel. I'm sure, maybe you remember it if you're from the 90s. Show featured uh, an angel named Monica working with her supervisor angel named Tess. And each episode would feature some person at a crossroads in life. And the angels would then intervene. But they look like humans, but they would offer hope and help and guidance. The person in crisis would then have a moment of enlightenment or growth, a breakthrough, and the angels would be on their way. The show was vastly, vastly popular in the 90s, ran nine seasons, and fed right into what some might call greeting card faith very positive and uplifting message without being too preachy. The show said very little about God, and it said absolutely nothing about Jesus. He was never mentioned. It was a Christless version of spirituality. The show obviously had a lot to say about angels. Angels were basically ideal humans, but they were works in progress. They weren't pictured as perfect in purity and holiness. The character Monica often didn't know what to do, had moral dilemmas, had human faults and failings. That's probably why the show was so successful. The main characters, angels, even though they were angels, were still so relatable. They were basically ideal versions of humans, these benevolent, kind do-gooders. And it's also nice to think that we might have our own personal guardian angel, someone looking out for us. It gives people a sense of spirituality with all all the commitments and demands of religion. This maybe explains our culture's overall fascination with angels. You don't have to be a Christian to believe in angels. They've become, in a way, secularized spirit beings. But they make make people feel connected to God and to the divine. God's he's distant. He's far off. He's unconcerned with us. He's doing other things. But angels are personal. These are beings who supposedly are entirely devoted to us and our lives, our fulfillment. You know, angels, they serve us, right? They're seen as heavenly guardians. Many believe that when a tree falls in a storm and narrowly misses their house, it was an angel who pushed it away just in time. Or maybe more Cupid-like, they believe there are beings out there who are devoted to helping them find their soulmate. Believing in beings who are completely devoted to our personal happiness feeds right into the egocentrism of our day. And angels, they're just so much better because they're not judgmental. They're spiritual cheerleaders. They're encouraging us. They're guiding us, but they're not judging us. God's a judge. He seems harsh and strict, but angels, they're serene. They're non-threatening. They're non-denominational. They don't have a creed. They're not concerned with moral or theological absolutes. It's about every religion can latch on to angels. In our culture, they exist to give us what we want, and they demand nothing in return, no religious sacrifice or duty. They, they just give. And so no wonder people love the, thoughts, uh, the thought of angels. So again, I think this helps explain the, the folk status of angels in our day, in a way. You go to a local Christian bookstore, and you'll find angel books and figurines and pictures, and just kind of scattered on bookmarks, and they're everywhere. They're still featured in TV shows and movies all the time, and and this Christmas season, angels will get more publicity than Jesus, because who's offended by an angel? And to the contrary, like I said, angels give people a feeling of spirituality without the demands of religion. And for the Christian, though, this, this kind of presents a bit of a challenge, because things are different for us. We believe the Bible is God's word, and It actually does say angels are real. There are real 
unseen spiritual beings. And God has told us a little bit about them. But there's so much misinformation and distortion and outright error that sometimes Christians even have things wrong. They've accepted what the culture says about angels without even actually knowing what the Bible says about angels. Do you know what the Bible actually says about angels? For example, what if I told you that there's not a single example of an angel in female form in the whole Bible? There's not one. What if I told you there are zero depictions of angels in a human form who have wings? There's not one. And there's definitely no angels in baby form. I just want to throw that in there. Now, how creepy to imagine this flying chubby toddler. I don't know who came up with that, but you should not depend on medieval art or modern media for your understanding of angels. But many people do, and Christians even can get swept away in this. They can lead to false practices. And some people seemingly rely on angels more than God. And they're delivered from some catastrophe. They might give more glory to an angel, their guardian angel, than to God. Some focus more on their personal relationship with their, so to speak, guardian angel than on Christ. Christ is eclipsed as our mediator. And some even pray to angels. They invoke a plethora of angels to help them and deliver them, to bless them. God, he's distant, but angels are near. There's always one around to help you in a time of need. But this veneration of angels represents serious error. Even though such people might not admit it, they are, in fact, rendering worship to angels. We kind of talked about this last week. Prayer even is a form of worship. This is a disqualifying issue. This is not a, a minor issue. This is idolatry, if that's what you're doing. God demands to be worshipped alone. That includes prayer, by the way. What even makes you think angels can hear you? They're not omniscient. They can't read your thoughts. They don't receive prayer. They don't answer prayer. But false information leads to false practice, even idolatry. This can be a serious problem, and this was a serious problem in Colossae. We just studied Colossians 2, verses 18 through 19. We found that in some circles, these teachers were combining elements of Judaism and Christianity and paganism. They had this form of spirituality that was more like mysticism, but it led them to these strange practices, which included worshiping angels. They believed they connected to the divine, to the presence of the divine through angels, these spirit beings on a higher plane. But Paul warns against this. And so last week we we looked at this passage. I'll read it for you. Colossians 2, 18 and 19. He says, Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head. We found out how similar this is to New Age thinking today. That some had latched onto the, the spiritual elements of Christianity, like angels, but they had rejected Christ in the gospel. They weren't holding fast to the head. Theirs was a Christless Christianity, and they were seeking to influence these new Christians accordingly. But Paul warns the church this mysticism, which includes this veneration of angels, is a disqualifying issue. So he says, Don't let others defraud you of your prize. Eternal life, 
by dragging you away from Christ and Christ alone and, and deluding you with error. Don't buy into this faux spirituality that claims connection with the divine, but disregards Christ and, and preaches another gospel. Now, we covered all that last week. We don't need to do that again. But as I reflected on these issues, and in particular this angel worship, I got to thinking how so much misinformation on angels is still out there. It's still prevalent in our culture, and I wouldn't be surprised if some of you have unwittingly bought into it. I'm not saying you worship angels or you're praying to angels. I certainly hope not. But still the church, in the church, it's important at times to dispel false notions and to set the record straight on what the Bible actually teaches. What does the Bible say? What What has God actually revealed about angels in his word? What is true? What is a myth? Why does this even matter? That's what we want to know. This issue doesn't come up too frequently. Here at this church, typically on Sunday mornings, we're preaching verse by verse through a book of the Bible. So I just, I just preach on whatever the next verse says. But in Colossians, it's interesting how we've intersected this issue of angels a few times. You know, back in chapter 1, we learned about these spiritual rulers and authorities in, in the heavenly places. In chapter 2, verse 15, we found how some of them even are, are evil. They've rebelled against God. But Christ has triumphed over them. In fact, we did a a full sermon not too long ago exploring what the Bible says about Christ's triumph over Satan, who himself is just chief of the fallen angels. Well, today I kind of want to do the same thing, but this time focusing on the, the positive side, on the holy angels. What does the Bible say about them? Who are they? What are they like? What do they do? What do they not do? What's their relationship to God? What's their relationship to us? How should we think about and relate to angels? There's definitely right and wrong answers here. And so our goal for today is, is pretty simple. We'll, we'll pit pause in Colossians and get back to it next week. But just for one sermon, I wanted to provide some basic instruction on what the Bible says about angels. And this hopefully will serve to both advance our understanding on something the Bible does talk about, while at the same time, warding off error and misinformation, which can still trip people up today. It wasn't just in the first century. And still many can fall prey to you know, subtle error here and there, and it can lead them astray. So that's our aim this morning. We're going to get into it, kind of a broad survey of what the Bible says about angels. So hopefully, in a way, set the record straight. So I'll make this simple, just a two-part outline to help you learn what the Bible says about angels. First... Let's cover who they are. So number one, who they are. Word for angel in Hebrew simply means messenger or one who is sent. And it means the same in the Greek, actually. And these words, they're often applied to human messengers or human envoys. But sometimes in scripture, it's very clear that the messenger being spoken of is is not human. There certainly are these non-human beings who've been sent by God for some purpose. And over time, the term angel became almost like a proper name for them. But they go by other names. They're sometimes called sons of God, holy ones, or the heavenly host. But it makes us wonder, like, just who are these non-human beings? 
Well, let's, let's cover here seven characteristics that tell us who they are. Just kind of rattle off some. Seven characteristics of angels that tell us who they are as we ask the question, you know, who are they? First, they are created beings. They are created beings. God made them in creation. We don't have the detailed account of their creation in Genesis 1 and 2. It mostly focuses on God's creation of the earth. But in Genesis 1, 1, it said God made the heavens and the earth, and it's not hard to infer that. When he made the heavens, he made the spiritual realm and these spiritual beings. In Job 38, verse 7, God himself references creating the angels before the earth. Also, Psalm 148, the psalmist calls on all creation to praise God, its creator, and that includes things physical and things spiritual. He says this, Psalm 48, 148, verse 1, he says, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Verse 5, let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. So first off, it's pretty straightforward, but you know, God made the angels the same way he made everything else. He spoke and they came into existence. They're not eternally existent beings like God himself. They're a part of this creation. Number two, they are personal beings. They're created beings. They're personal beings. Now, they're part of God's creation, but they do stand out. They're not like rocks or trees or hills or, or clouds. They're not even like animals. They are rather persons. They're personal beings. Now, the way we define personhood is possessing intellect, emotion, and will. And angels display all three. They display intellect in their activities from conversing to singing to worshiping. Second Samuel 14, 20, they're referred to as wise beings. Angels display emotion. You know, Luke 15, 10, it says that the angels rejoice when one sinner repents. They celebrate. And they also show God fear and wonder and respect. And angels have a will. 1 Peter 1.12, it's speaking of our salvation. And it says, these are things into which angels long to look. And the word long, it speaks of deep desire. They deeply desire to understand this plan of salvation. And angels have the ability to obey God or disobey God by choice. That God did not make them deterministic robots. They were made to worship God and obey him entirely, and, and the holy angels do so, but we know it's possible for them not to do so because, well, some did not do so. Some chose to rebel, and that's all that demons are. They're merely fallen angels who chose to rebel against God's holy will. But all of the angels were made as personal beings. They're the persons. Number three, they are holy beings. They are holy beings. When God made the angels, he made all of them holy and morally pure. The angels were created in a state of sinlessness and holiness. And that even includes Satan. Remember we learned about three or four weeks ago, Satan was originally one of the holy angels. Ezekiel 28, 15 says he was made blameless, but Satan and one third of the angels fell into rebellion against God. They became evil in nature, and they will remain evil in nature until they're judged. There's no plan of redemption for the fallen angels. 
But the remaining two-thirds of the heavenly host are still in that state of holiness. In Mark 8, 38, Jesus calls them the holy angels. That's hard for us to conceive because we are sinners by nature. Sin is natural for us in a way. But for the holy angels, they've never sinned. They've not once disobeyed God. They've always perfectly kept God's will for them. It's sad for us to say, but we can't relate to that. We don't know what that's like. Someday we will, by God's grace, he says, he will make us like the angels, perfected in holiness. For now, we are not. But the holy angels, they are holy beings. They still are holy beings. Number four, they are spirit beings. They are spirit beings. So far, you might think that angels sound just kind of like humans. They were made by God. They're personal beings. They were made in a state of holiness. That kind of sounds like us. But they are not like us. And one massive difference is that angels are spirit beings. What does that even mean? How do we define that? This likewise is is hard to conceive. It's kind of interesting, but the modern notion of, of an alternate dimension might actually be the most helpful way to think about Angels, that the Bible says there's another type of realm or call it a dimension where angels exist. We can't see. Perhaps the best we can do to define a spirit is to say what they're not. And they're not physical beings, which means they do not have flesh and bone bodies. And Christ himself made this distinction. If you remember, after his resurrection, he shows up to the disciples and they think He's a spirit, or he might be a spirit. So he tells them to touch him. And he says this, For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And he was resurrected in the flesh as well. But the point is, Satan, angels, and demons, they're all referred to as spirits, which means they don't have flesh and bone bodies like we do. Angels, however, do appear to be able to access our realm, our world. They're sent by God into the world for various reasons, as we'll see. But, you know, unless our eyes are opened, we can't see them. We are, in fact, completely oblivious to their presence. We learned back in Colossians 1.16 that these heavenly beings are part of the invisible things God made. He made all things visible and invisible. They're part of that Invisible creation, we cannot detect them at all. That means no one has angel radar. There's no sixth sense to detect them. Someone says that they see angels or they can sense angels. They're just deluded. The only time people can see or sense angels is when God purposely reveals them. And on occasion, he has done so. Great example is Second Kings chapter 6. The king of Aram surrounded the city of Dothan, and he, he sent his whole army for one purpose, is to capture the prophet Elisha, who was a thorn in his side. And so when Elisha's servant woke up the next morning, he saw the whole city surrounded by the chariots and horses of the Aramean army, and he thought they're all going to die. So he says to Elisha, his master, like, what are we going to do? And Elisha says back to him, 2 Kings 6, verse 16, says, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. 
And then Elisha prayed and said, Oh Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Now God opened his eyes to see the heavenly host that was there to deliver them. And, and they did. But apart from God opening our eyes like this, we, we don't have the ability to see angels or to detect the spirit world. Now, it is true that sometimes angels manifest themselves and people still don't recognize them. They're still not given eyes to see that they're in the presence of an angel. In Hebrew, Hebrews 13.2 says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. This is a reference to the Old Testament examples of Abraham, Lot, Gideon, Manoah. It's a few examples where people didn't realize they were in the presence of an angel until later. However, although angels appearing to humans is extremely rare, even in the Bible, it's extremely rare. Most times when they appear, what's, what's people's response? Fear. And their presence is always taken as terrifying. No one is scared of Cupid, or maybe for other reasons, but no one's really scared of Cupid. Or those, you know, serene angels on Christmas cards. But whenever people in the Bible encountered a real heavenly being, they were scared for their lives. They, they thought they were going to die because they knew they were in the presence of a, a greater being. And this explains almost always that the first thing an angel says when he shows up to people is what? Do not be afraid. Like, hey, don't worry, we're not here to kill you. But this just shows something of their majesty as part of God's creation. Speaking of, number five, they are higher beings. They are higher beings. And that not only are angels unlike humans in that they're spirit beings, but they're also unlike us in that they are higher beings, a higher order of being. Just as man is above animals, angels are above men. Hebrews 2.7 speaks of Christ's incarnation when he took on human flesh. And it says that for a little while he was made lower than the angels, which clearly indicates that humanity is of a lower order than the angels. But you need to make sure you understand they are not divine. They're infinitely lower than God, as all creation is. They're not omniscient. They do not know all things. They're not omnipresent. They're not in all places at once. They're not omnipotent. They don't have all power. That being said, they still know a lot more than man. They're much more mobile than man, and they're much more powerful than man. They're higher than us, but they're not divine. Now, the power of angels in particular is often on display in Scripture. 2 Peter 2.11 refers to angelic beings as being greater in might and power than us. And that's no understatement. You know, back in Genesis 19, a pair of destroying angels show up with the angel of the Lord at Sodom and Gomorrah. And first, they blind all the men of the city. But later, they strike down the whole valley. They rain down fire and brimstone on the whole valley, killing everyone. That's where that phrase comes, comes from, you know, fire and brimstone. 
Second Samuel 24, an angel of the Lord struck down 70,000 men with pestilence as a form of judgment. And in 2 Kings 19, one single angel slew 185,000 Assyrians who were about to destroy Jerusalem. God delivered them with one angel. On the New Testament side of things, it was an angel who moved away the large stone in front of Christ's empty tomb. And that event was confused with a severe earthquake. But it was just an angel moving a stone. It was also an angel who led Peter in his supernatural jailbreak in Acts chapter 12. And in the same chapter, it was an angel who struck Herod dead with a pestilent disease. All this goes to say, angels appear as truly powerful beings. They're not divine. They're not on par with God or Christ, not even close, but they are certainly more powerful than us and a higher order of being than us. That doesn't mean they're all created equal. Number six, they are ranked beings. They are ranked beings. It does not appear they're all made the same. We've already studied this in Colossians, but it does appear there are different ranks or classes of angels. We don't know the specifics, just that angels and demons are often described with these titles that imply rank or class. And these titles include principalities, powers, rulers, authorities, thrones, and dominions. We're not given a full taxonomy of angels, but it appears they differ in power. And this is seemingly confirmed by the presence of Michael, who is mentioned in scripture as an archangel or one of the chief princes, it says. He appears to be the highest ranking angel. But Daniel 10.13 refers to Michael as one of the chief princes, which also implies that there's more than one archangel, but none of the others are ever named. The only other named angel in the Bible, apart from, I guess, Lucifer, but the only other named holy angel is Gabriel. And Gabriel always appears as a special messenger angel. It seems his job is to announce to people news of God's coming king or his kingdom. Now, on top of this, we get glimpses of a few angelic beings who appear completely different from the rest. And kind of like we read this morning, we're talking seraphim and cherubim. The scripture never explains their relation to the other angels. So we don't know for sure, but it, it seems very clear they're part of the heavenly host, which is probably a diverse body. They appear as divine attendants. Seraphim are only mentioned once in the Bible, and that's Isaiah 6, we read earlier. And they proclaim the perfect holiness of God. Cherubim are mentioned a few times, and some speculate they're the most glorious of all of God's creation. And it's a coincidence that on top of the mercy seat, on top of the Ark of the Covenant, there were two cherubim enthroned there. And, and God who sits throne above the cherubim is how he's often referred to. But these beings always show up next to the glory of God. Now, as a quick side note, seraphim and cherubim are the only angelic beings ever mentioned with wings. So these guys do have wings. That is true. Not two wings. They've got six, as we learned this morning. But these are the ones with the confirmed wing sighting. But no other angel is ever mentioned having wings. They could, they couldn't. We don't know. That's never otherwise mentioned. Number seven, 
Lastly, they are fixed beings. They're fixed beings. And what I mean here is scripture seems to indicate the number of angels is fixed. Jesus made clear in Matthew 22 verse 30 that angels neither marry nor are given in marriage in heaven. We assume that means, therefore, they don't reproduce. If that's true, their numbers are fixed. This might accord with the fact that angels always appear male. Now, I don't know how you even define gender for a being that has no physical body. But every time an angel does appear, it's always in the form of a man. There are no instances of angels ever appearing in the form of a woman. And again, I'll say again, no instances of angels ever appearing in the form of a baby. Well, how many angels are there? We don't know for sure, but John saw in his heavenly vision in Revelation 5.11, he saw the whole heavenly host around the throne of God, and he said there were myriads of myriads and thousands of of thousands. That's just another way of saying too many to count, innumerable. God made truly a whole host of heaven, a numerable numerable number of angels to attend him and his glory. Now, we could keep going on and say a lot more about who angels are, what they're like. But even still, even apart from what we've covered, we have to understand that most of their existence remains a mystery to us. We only know what God has revealed. That being said, though, why don't we carry on and and talk about, well, what we do know instead of just speculating. And let's focus now on the function of angels. angels. So a second part here, what they do. Who they are, what they do. Angels, looks like they do quite a bit. None of which we can see, but the Lord has revealed a bit and we can put some things together. Let's talk about what angels do in relationship to their various uh, relationships. So first, in relation to God. What they do in relation to God. And the function of angels in relation to God is primarily worship. The angels were made to proclaim the glory of God. As we saw in Isaiah 6, you have these heavenly creatures proclaiming that the threefold holiness of God, holy, holy, holy. And then thousands of years later, Presumably, the same creatures show up in Revelation 4. And what are they doing? What are they saying? They're doing the same thing. They're saying the same thing. It says day and night, they do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy. Several times throughout Revelation, in fact, we get glimpses of the whole heavenly host falling down before the throne of God and the Lamb declaring their praise. They were made to praise God. They were made to serve God. As well, they appear as God's attendants. They accomplish his will on earth. Hebrews 1.7 refers to angels as God's ministers. He sends them out to do things, to do his bidding. Also Psalm 103, verse 20. It says, bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts who serve him, doing his will. God is sovereign over the ends. We know that. He's also sovereign over the means. And it appears that behind the scenes, most of it unseen to us, that God will use angels to bring about various aspects of his will on earth. This is not seen by us, but 
don't picture the angel world as dormant, as if they're just sitting in heaven doing nothing. It appears quite active. Number two, in relation to Christ. What do they do in relation to Christ? Well, just as angels minister to God and serve him, well, they minister to Christ and serve him. Angels are always popping up around Jesus. They played a big role in announcing the birth of Jesus. You know about that. We hear about that every Christmas time. But it was also an angel who protected Jesus in his infancy from being slaughtered by Herod by telling Joseph to flee to Egypt. Angels show up at the beginning of Christ's ministry. After he's tempted by Satan in the wilderness, Matthew 4.11 says, angels showed up and began ministering to him, strengthening him. And they show up at the end of Christ's ministry. After his final temptation in the garden of Gethsemane, Luke 22.43 says, an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. Angels are the first ones to announce the resurrection of Jesus. A couple of angels show up in the empty tomb. And most likely, those same two angels are the ones there at the ascension of Jesus. As Jesus ascends, there are a pair of angels and they tell the disciples that Jesus will come back in the same way as he left. And speaking of, angels are always associated with the second coming of Jesus. That when Jesus returns, he's, he's not coming alone. That the angels will accompany him as instruments of God's judgment. Matthew 25, 31, it says, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. They will all come with him. So all in all, angels are completely devoted servants of God. And so it only makes sense then that they're also seen as completely devoted servants of Christ. These beings serve the triune God. A couple more here. Number three, in relation to believers. What do they do in relation to believers? In Hebrews 1.14, speaking of angels, it says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? And so they are seen as ministering servants for God's people. And one way the angels serve God and do his bidding is by serving us. That is true. God tasks his holy angels with helping his people. This service might come in the form of physical protection or rescue or deliverance. It does appear that sometimes the prayers of God's people are answered by means of angels. You know, Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are cast in the fiery furnace But a fourth figure shows up, an angel of the Lord, maybe the angel of the Lord, but an angel shows up in the furnace with them, preserving them. And likewise, in Daniel 6, Daniel's thrown to the lion's den, but he's not consumed. And it says later that the Lord sent an angel in there with him to shut the mouths of the lions. It was an angel who freed the imprisoned apostles in Acts chapter 5. And again, later in Acts 12, an angel freed Peter from jail. It's really interesting in Acts 12 verse 5. Before Peter was freed, it says the church was fervently praying for Peter and his deliverance. And God answered that prayer through an angel. Now they never would have known about that unless it had been revealed. 
Does God still do that today? Does, does he still maybe, you know, sometimes answer prayers with the heavenly messenger? I can't say, how, or I can't see how you could say no to that. I, I assume so, without a doubt, he must. But we are never told, we don't have eyes to see, so we can never say with any authority. It's, we're just left to, to wonder. And then you have this verse, Matthew 18, verse 10. For Christ said, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my father who is in heaven. Now, this verse is often taken as the guardian angel verse, but it it doesn't really support guardian angels as if every single person has like a one-on-one angel devoted to them. Rather, Christ here is speaking collectively. He's saying all the angels stand at the ready to go serve God's people as he sees fit. They're ready to go as the Father commands. But it does appear that God uses angels often to render aid to his church. And lastly here, number four, in relation to unbelievers. What do angels do in relation to unbelievers? Well, in relation to unbelievers, we we always see angels announcing and delivering forms of God's judgment. We've already seen several times where angels physically defeat God's enemies. And several times, they're the ones bringing down God's wrath on the wicked who refuse to repent. Now, I keep saying, since we don't have eyes to see, I caution people against wild speculation. You know, was that an earthquake? Or rather, was that earthquake just an earthquake? Or was it you know, God's judgment through an angel. Who knows? We don't know. God is not revealed. If he's not revealed, beware undue wild speculation that could take you astray. But it's possible. God has done it before. One important thing to note, though, is how much God uses angels to bring about the final judgment uh, before Christ returns. You just read the book of Revelation. You see the series of judgments that come during the tribulation period. And most of them are administered by angels. God will use them to literally pour out his wrath on the earth in the tribulation. And the tribulation time culminates with the return of Christ in Revelation 19. And he is once again seen accompanied by the whole host of heaven. It says that Jesus himself will strike down the nations and Rule them with a rod of iron. But we learn actually that, that the Lord will use angels as part of the means for conquering the nations when he returns. This is a picture painted by Matthew 13. That Jesus told a parable of tares among wheat. Do you remember that? That an enemy came in and sowed tares in a wheat field. And the master let them grow up together because he didn't want to harm the wheat. But at the end, when the harvest would come, he would send out the reapers to gather the tares up first and burn them with fire and then gather the wheat safely into the barn. And Jesus himself later interpreted this parable for us. He said the enemy who sowed the tares was the devil. The wheat represents God's people, the tares, the lost, and the wicked. And together in this age, they are allowed to grow up side by side, even in the church sometimes. But at the end of the age, Christ will send forth his reapers, which he says are the angels. And what will they do? Matthew 13, 41. 
He says, the son of man will send forth his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks, all those who commit lawlessness and will throw them in the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In the end, Jesus will issue the command and the holy angels will gather all those who've not bowed the knee to Jesus. There's no resisting that judgment. They will be cast away from the Lord's presence forever. This is the judgment of the sheep and the goats, the wheat and the tares, and it appears angels will administer this separating judgment. Well, again, believe it or not, more could be said about what angels do. The scripture reveals how Satan and angels and demons are in a constant state of spiritual warfare of influence over the nations. And I guarantee we'll be blown away in heaven by coming to learn the many ways God has used his angels to influence events on earth. But I think what we've covered for now suffices to set the record straight on who angels are and what they do according to the Bible. And I just want to save a little time at the end, though, to reflect on what we have learned. Now, you study angels and scriptures like this. How do we respond? How do we relate to these angelic beings? Like, what, what do we do with a study like this? I want to give you three things to finish our time. First, praise God for his wondrous creation. You should praise him for his wondrous creation. We should join the psalmist in declaring God's glory for all he's created. We wonder and marvel at God's physical creation all the time. The sun, the moons, the stars. We should likewise wonder and marvel at God's spiritual creation. Even though we can't see it, we believe it in the word we know God has made all things. He's made beings greater than ourselves. Like one glance at a snail is all it takes to realize you are a higher being. But God has made beings higher than us, greater in majesty. As often as we think about that, we should direct our praise to God. Praise the one who made all things seen and unseen. We should join the chorus of angels who falls down before the throne and, and praises their creator. Secondly, Praise God, not his wondrous creation. Just to clarify, you know, it's at the heart of fallen man to exchange the glory of God for an image and to direct worship to the creation instead of the creator. And so some people have literally worshiped the sun and the moon and stars. And we see wondrous things. We worship them, failing to recognize the God who made them. And that has also happened with angels. And we learned in Colossians, some people were literally worshiping angels and it still happens today. Now, as magnificent as angels are though, they're not worthy of worship. They're not the creator. They're fellow creatures. And all that we've studied, scripture never tells us to worship angels. They never receive worship. In fact, they always refuse worship. And so the veneration of angels, which as we covered, that includes praying to them, is undue worship. It amounts to idolatry, as we found in Colossians. And just make sure you're not caught up in that. As fascinating as the world of angels might be, realize they're never the focus. Whenever we learn about angels in scripture, it's always indirectly. It's always incidental. They're never the main subject of really anything. Does God still use angels today 
to deliver his people or to answer prayers? Are angels still very active? I'm sure. But why do you think God has not given us eyes to see so that we can see that or know that? Why, has he, why does he not show us? Well, probably because he does not want us to focus on them. He doesn't want us to obsess over them. As great as they might be, they're still the tools. He's the builder. They don't receive prayer. They don't answer prayer. Only God does. No matter what, just give him the glory and worship and the praise. And the same goes for Christ. And in the incarnation, as he took on human flesh, Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. But make no mistake, being the Son of God and God the Son, he is greater than the angels. Again, back to Colossians 1.16, we found Jesus is the one who made the angels. He's their maker. He's their head. They're not on par with him. And so Hebrews 1.5 says, To which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son? None. No angel died for us, only the Lord of glory. And that same Lord reigned supreme over all creation. And so instead, Hebrews 1.6 says, Let all the angels of God worship him. Talking about Christ. The author of Hebrews, far from us worshiping them, calls on all of the angels to worship Christ. That Christ trumps all rule and power and authority. So bow the knee to him. Make sure you are focusing on Christ as the sole object of your affection and worship and prayer and praise. It's okay to, to marvel and wonder at God's wondrous creation. But just do not praise God's wondrous creation. Make sure you're praising him and and him alone. And then lastly, thirdly, praise God for his grace to us. Praise God for his grace to us. What I mean by that is, as you think about it, mankind is the pinnacle of God's physical creation. And angel kind is the pinnacle of God's spiritual creation. But you realize both creations are tarnished and had a fall. That humans and angels rebelled and sinned against the Lord. But did you know that there is zero plan of redemption for the fallen angels? That the angels who fell will only ever know God's justice and wrath. They will never know his mercy and forgiveness. This is not unjust of God. He's perfectly just to judge all who violate his will. He does not owe anyone grace by definition. The same goes for us. God would be perfectly just to judge every human and never offer salvation. He would be perfectly righteous to do so because we deserve that. But God did choose to set his saving love and grace upon us. Even though we sinned and rebelled against God, in his grace, he made a plan of salvation and redemption for us He even went to the extent of sending his son to take on humanity, go lower than the angels, and die in our place. That's amazing grace. That's undeserved grace for sinners. But again, that grace is only for humans. It's not offered to angels. That Jesus did not come as a substitute for angels, but only for man. Again, this is all Hebrews. Hebrews 2.16 says, For assuredly, He does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. That God's salvation is only for 
humans. And even on top of this, we find that in a way, God will exalt his people above the angels. That humans inherit the kingdom. And 1 Corinthians 6, 3 adds, do you not know that we will judge the angels? That's a mysterious verse, but nonetheless, God in some way exalts his people over the angels. This is kind of mind-blowing. Why would God care for us that much? Why save us? Why exalt us? Why not redeem the angels? They are a greater creature. Why send the Son of God to die for humans? We cannot fully answer. There's mystery in God's unconditional and free love. This is simply how he chose to bring glory to his name. Who are we? We don't deserve any kindness or help from God, but he seems to be very concerned with us. He sent Christ for us. He sends his holy angels to minister to us. It's just grace, though. All this boils down to is just God's grace toward us. And so at the very least, then, we'll marvel at his grace for us. Praise him for his grace to us. You don't have to understand it fully. In fact, I don't think we can understand it fully. But you can thank him for it and praise him for it, for what you do know and you do see. It can be fun to think about that the hidden angelic world and wonder what other mysteries await us. But let's learn from our time in Colossians and our time this morning that as amazing as God's angelic creation is, still we need to keep our eyes focused and fixed on Christ, the Lord, the Savior, our Redeemer. No matter what, let's be sure to join the saints and the angels in praising God and the Lamb alone for his saving grace. Revelation 5.11 says, John says, I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Let's make sure that we are joining them in, in their song and praising the Son. Well, let's pray. Our Father God in heaven, we, we do exalt you this morning for your wondrous creation. We see the world around us and marvel at the sun, the moon, the stars, the, the sea, the mountains. The God who made all this is magnificent, it reflects your glory. But even now we learn that there's an unseen creation. We wouldn't detect it apart from you revealing, but you have revealed. And as we learn about it this morning, we likewise can marvel the God who made so much more. That you are a big God, a marvelous God yourself. And I pray we reflect that and give you the worship for it. At the same time, we confess our unworthiness, seeing ourselves before you as, as your creation, once made holy like the angels, but we too have fallen Yet we see Christ, our Savior, once made lower than the angels, though he himself is exalted above them, that for some reason you sent him to die for us, to redeem us. There's some mystery there, Lord, but we can thank and praise you for your plan to redeem at least part of your fallen creation, us. We wonder and marvel at your plan of redemption, but we see your hand of grace in it, that you sent the Son to become a man and to take on human flesh, and to die in our place. That's where our eyes need to be fixed always. The hidden world around us, may we not obsess over it, 
But as we think about it in Scripture, just again, render you the praise. You're a God who works all things for our good. And we know that includes these angelic beings. But we thank you for all the grace you've shown us. And again, in Christ, keep our eyes fixed on him no matter what. We thank you for him. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.